Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. That's us. I'm Justin Burke, joined tonight, as always, by Dr. Krista Chumanchu and our producer, Dr. Brian Ward. Not quite yet, technically, but by the time this airs, Dr. Brian Ward, how does it feel? Ooh, it feels weird. I don't know if I like it yet, uh, <laughs> but I'm here. I, you're here. We love it. We're excited to have you on the team. You put together a wonderful episode for us. Our guest tonight is Dr. Peter Liu to discuss constipation, a great core pediatric topic. But before we get into the content, hey, Chris, can you tell us about the show? Yeah, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Peter Liu. Dr. Liu is a pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital and an associate professor of pediatrics at the Ohio State University College of Medicine in Columbus, Ohio. He specializes in neurogastroenterology and motility disorders. As research director of the GI Motility Center, he conducts research evaluating novel technology-based diagnostic tests and treatments for children with these disorders. He's also the co-creator and host of the NASPEGAN Bowel Sounds podcast. It's a pediatric GI podcast. Today, he teaches us how functional constipation is not really a diagnosis of exclusion, the core treatment of acute and chronic constipation, and when you're grasping at straws, you can consider ordering colonic manometry. Ooh, yeah, we went deep on this one and got a lot of great pearls. He also shared a great Naspogen resource, uh, a website, toolbots.naspogen.org. That's toolbots.naspgan.org, which if nothing else from this episode, you should go check out right now, uh, a really wonderful resource. I can't hold it in any longer. People are going to be so excited at the final release of this episode. Just completely cathartic. Uh, a lot of your constipation puns. We probably should have done more. <laughs> All right. They just wouldn't come out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Dr. Peter Liu. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Crib Starters. We're excited to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. A longtime fan. So it's a, yeah, thank you so much. We are happy to have another podcast expert coming from Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI podcast. So this is almost like a collaborative episode. We are excited to learn more about you and about constipation. Um, but before we get started, I first want to ask permission. Is it okay if we call you by your first name, Peter? Of course, yes. Uh, we're an informal group. We try to be informal with everyone. We always want to do it with permission, though. And I would love to get to know you better. I think uh, Chris would get to, uh, love to get to know you better. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe in a one-liner, and tell us something about uh, one of your interests outside of medicine? Sure. So I thought a lot about this. Uh, I ended up going just with my Twitter bio, essentially. <laughs> so I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist and GI motility specialist. Uh, co-creator and host of the Bow Sounds podcast. I'm a part-time DJ, husband, and a relatively new dad. So I guess 15 months ago, I became a dad. So it's not that new anymore, but Ooh, congratulations. relatively new. 
That's very exciting. Although I do have to go back and follow up on the DJ question. <laughs> uh, what are you doing yeah. bar mitzvahs? What's the what's the DJ right. scene like in in Ohio? So to be honest, I I have uh, I used to DJ weddings. Um, I kind of stopped doing that. It's it's like too much pressure. It's a lot. It's, uh, a lot of pressure with like name pronunciation and mm. it's just too much pressure. So now I primarily DJ, to be honest, like a hospital events. So oh, right on. a couple oh, of weeks nice. ago was our uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital, like house staff graduation. So the first in-person one we've done since the, since the pandemic. Um, so yeah, a few hospital events a year, some house party stuff, but That's not too gig. much to be honest. That's cool. Pandemic well, I, hurt my business uh, quite a bit. It's uh, it's still much cooler than any other side gig that I have. So, uh, <laughs> so we have, you have a 15 month old, right? What is yes. your favorite book to read to your 15 month old? Ooh, you know, okay. Oh my god, I'm blanking on the name. It's uh, duh, I can picture it in my head. Okay, <laughs> I'll choose a different one. So sure. currently, the one that she loves the most is uh, I, it's not good that I'm blanking on all the book names. But um, you could probably recite it from like, memory, though. Everything else, in there. it's more pictures. Well, yeah, what's the plot? Give us what's the uh, yeah, what's yeah, the yeah, synopsis? Yeah, yeah. There, she loves this book about like uh, like uh, women heroes in history. It's called like Little Women Heroes or something like that. But I've seen that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, like Rosa Parks, uh, Florence Nightingale, that kind of stuff. She good loves night that stories, book. Stories, good night stories for rebel girls. Something, oh, I don't know. Maybe, no. Something like that. Little dreamers, As you can tell, women around the, the world. The reading is kind of cursory. We're just kind of flipping through. Right, right. She doesn't know what it is. <laughs> it's if you, a great book. Uh, fun <laughs> yeah. fact, if you Google Women Heroes in History Children's Book, there's a good list of options. So We will put them all in the show notes. We'll put Brian. them all in yeah, the show yeah, notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brian, you have a question? <laughs> sure. Um this is an oldie but a goodie. What is your favorite advice for incoming interns as we come up on the start of intern year? Ooh. So, okay. You know, I feel like one thing, I think there's a couple of things that I remember hearing myself that I feel like was really helpful, even though it wasn't like the usual, you know, follow your passion or, you know, that kind of stuff. They're both really both from my current mentor, who's now my chief, uh, Carlo DiLorenzo. Um, one is, uh, punctuality is the politeness of kings. So just be on time. I feel like as an intern, for sure, you want to be on time for, you know, sign out and stuff like that, meeting with potential mentors, etc. It just goes so far, you know. And the other thing is that it's really not about finding your passion. It's about developing your passion, right? So if you go into it, you're not looking for something that you fall in love with at first sight. It's really more, uh, I think for most experts, at least in my field that I've worked, encountered, you know, it's really about something that they developed to become their passion. So I think it's like being open to working with different people. I think really kind of the mentor and the opportunity is more important than maybe the specific disease process. So yeah, there you go. Love that. Yeah, that's great. Love it. Great advice for incoming interns. Perfect timing. And now let's get into even more advice on how to take care of people that have trouble pooping. Uh, Brian, Hit us off, man. Uh, why don't you give us a start with our Brian our can't even case. hold it in. He's got to bring it out. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll start with a case from Castle. I'm just going to ignore Chris. We're going to start with a case from Castle. <laughs> a four-year-old named Bristol. Bristol. It's just Bristol. 
Uh, <laughs> You're the one who wrote the script. You can't remember that. I, I, like, I don't get the but now really I get it. All right. It's really bad and it gets worse. <laughs> so Brie comes into your primary care <laughs> clinic for a well child visit. During the visit, her parent mentions that Brie only goes number two a few times a week and has some pain with straining. So why don't we start this whole discussion with a, a definition of constipation and, and what's really important in your mind when you're talking about or when you're diagnosing constipation. Sure. Yeah. So of course, like no definition is perfect, but the one that I think is most commonly used, at least in the pediatric GI world, is the Rome 4 criteria, which are a set of diagnostic criteria that really apply to all kind of what were formerly known as functional GI disorders, now disorders of gut-brain interaction, and the pediatric criteria for constipation, for functional constipation, are less than two or equal to two bowel movements per week, greater than or equal to one episode of fecal incontinence per week, which we'll talk about more later is a big difference from like the adult criteria, stool withholding, painful or hard bowel movements, large caliber stools, or a large amount of stool in the rectum, either based on like digital rectal exam or potentially abdominal x-ray. And then so Brian, you mentioned like, or you asked, you know, what's the most important one of those? In reality, I think fecal incontinence is the most important thing to pay attention to. Because as you guys all know, like, as, or you might imagine or have personal experience, you know, that can be super devastating, you know, to anyone, especially a child's self-esteem. So I think that is a, it's like a huge red flag. You know, really that's something like GI bleeds, foreign bodies, button batteries are emergencies. To me, like fecal incontinence is like just a little below that. I just feel like that's something that can really be devastating. No one wants to talk about it can really drive a lot of like, you know, withdrawing from social activities. So to me, fecal incontinence is the one that matters the most out of those. My question is about the Bristol stool chart. I can yes. never, like, I, I don't have this thing memorized. I always have to look it up. <laughs> is, is there a better, is, is it useful first off? And if it is, like, is there a better way to remember this? Or do I just always have to have this thing in my photos app on my phone and just, right. you know. <laughs> so, okay, I will say, there may be a few things that I say during this interview that I feel like I might get, uh, you know, some hate for. I personally don't use the Bristol Stool Scale that much. I think it's helpful for research for sure. So a lot of our studies, we use it. We have like the picture right there. We ask people maybe on RedCap to like choose one. But in reality, I use, especially for kids, I usually ask, you know, hard stools, rocks, hard, you know, that kind of stuff to like soft pieces, mushy, more general terms. Uh, I use a lot of food analogies, like banana, mashed potatoes, that kind of stuff, applesauce. Um, so, no, I think you're fine in not using the Bristol stool scale on a regular basis. And that was, I was going to have a similar question, Chris, so I'm glad you mentioned that. And I feel like for some of the kiddos that are, you know, one or two years old and younger, I have a lot of parents coming in that are worried about their kid really straining and I, mm -hmm. one of the things I usually try to, if there's not, uh, you know, incoparesis or there's not fecal leakage, I'll ask about like, is it raisin, you know, or is it banana? That's not really aligning with the room four, but how do, how, just, how do you approach uh, diagnosing constipation if you are in a one or two year old or younger? Yeah. So I do think that it's, you know, the criteria that I just mentioned, right, doesn't fully apply. Like certainly they can't have fecal incontinence, right? Because they're in diapers. So um, a lot of it's going to be, so you mentioned straining. I do think that straining pain with bowel movements is a big part of it. Although sometimes, especially in infants, they can have dyskesia where, where it can be difficult to coordinate the muscles to pass stool. They strain a lot, but the stools are still soft and regular. 
Um, so I think it's a combination of straining, bowel movement frequency, stool consistency. It doesn't have to be necessarily like a certain level of like Bristol stool scale, but just hard consistency and dry, you know, that kind of thing in general. So, so yeah, the criteria do have to be kind of adapted based on the age, developmental stage, that kind of thing. And so what are some of the organic causes of constipation? What are some of the things that can cause constipation that we worry about? Uh, what's on the differential when uh, an expert like you sees someone who is having constipation or trouble going to the bathroom? Yeah. So, you know, I, before I kind of mentioned the criteria for functional constipation. So just to clarify, so that's constipation that's not caused by an underlying disease. And so we, you know, kind of call those causes, quote unquote, organic causes, although we're kind of moving away from that nomenclature any also. But anyways, so yeah, there are some underlying diseases that we don't want to miss that can present as constipation. And the groups that I think about really depend on, in large part, age and age of onset, and also maybe also some like other parts of the story. So I think the first kind of broad category to think about are for the children who come in maybe like as an infant or a toddler where their constipation began really early on. So if the constipation began in like the first month of life, especially, we want to make sure we don't miss a congenital abnormality like Hirschsprung disease, for example, if uh, maybe meconium passage was, was delayed after 48 hours or something, or anartal malformations, spinal cord abnormal abnormalities, especially if there's other like neurological signs or urinary symptoms. For kids who come in with constipation and maybe also bloating, pain, poor waking or growth, especially poor waking or growth, we do oftentimes screen for things like celiac disease or hypothyroidism. Um, for example, if rectal bleeding is part of the presentation, like sure, hard stool can cause an anal fissure or a small tear and some bleeding. But if it's more than just a, like really occasional, um, you want to make sure you're not dealing with things like perianal Crohn's disease. So I have a couple of Crohn's disease patients who really presented with constipation. So I think age makes a difference, but also some of those other things that we see that might be kind of like red flags that we're dealing with something more than just functional constipation. Now, does functional constipation or DAGBA or DAGB, whatever we want to call it, does it, does it need to be a diagnosis of exclusion? Because it sounds like there are so many other things that can be. I would find it difficult to try to rule out all those things first. How do you go about that? And are there specific red flags when you're gathering history that, that will ping you to go one way or the other? Yeah. So, so first of all, I, it is not a diagnosis of exclusion. And in reality, so you alluded to like the change in name from functional GI disorders to disorders of gut-brain interaction. And really for all those disorders, it is no longer a diagnosis of exclusion, right? So all those disorders, like for example, things like irritable bowel syndrome, two decades ago, no one knew what caused that. Now we have so many known factors and mechanisms that cause that, that it's really not about making like a negative diagnosis. It's about making a positive diagnosis based on the criteria. So that's kind of the same thing for functional constipation, especially because functional constipation really makes up the vast majority, especially in pediatrics, of what causes constipation in, in, in children. So, um, so no, there's not like a diagnosis of exclusion. It's really more when the presentation or maybe even the response to treatment doesn't fit with functional constipation that we want to make sure we're not missing other things. So this is great. So I'm hearing almost that like it's functional constipation until proven otherwise. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I would say like if there are parts of the story or on the exam, which we'll talk about a little bit later too, that make you worry, then yes, further evaluation may be needed. But if it's if it fits with the, you know, like the diagnostic criteria, there's not those red flags, then you may not need any more testing. 
do we know more about physiology? Like what, what is the underlying mechanism here? It sounds like there's something to do with gut and the brain. And I know that serotonin is involved probably I've heard in the past, (laughs) like, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So one thing I will say, you know, the whole term of disorders of gut brain interaction, I feel like my opinion is that it fits a bit better with certain kinds of disorders like irritable bowel syndrome or other abdominal pain disorders where we know it's more nerve sensitivity, interpreting those signals, that kind of thing. Functional constipation, to kind of differ, to kind of make a distinction from those kinds of disorders, in younger children especially, the most common reason we see it is because a hard poop was painful and led to withholding. And then that withholding, whether voluntary or involuntary, has perpetuated the cycle of stool retention, drying it out, you know, that kind of thing. So it's not really the same as like gut-brain interaction, although there's, there's some of that, you know. If like the body's telling the child they have to go and they're withholding, then yeah, there's some communication that's not necessarily going right. But yeah, that's kind of like really probably the most common mechanism, quote unquote, underlying constipation for children, especially for younger children. As we get into like the teenage years, it becomes a little bit more like adult constipation in that we can see things like pelvic floor dysenergia or pelvic floor dysfunction leading to outlet problems, not being able to fully empty the colon. But yeah, especially for the younger kids, withholding and uh, stool retention, building up, difficulty passing that, perpetuating the cycle is probably the most common underlying pathophysiology. So as we talk about distinguishing these um, disorders of the gut-brain axis and other other issues, who does get work up? Yeah. So I think it goes uh, back to those concerning signs that would make you worry about an underlying disorder. You know, so for example, the child with really early onset uh, constipation, it doesn't even necessarily mean like specialized testing. You you just want to make sure you do a good exam, you know, a digital rectal exam, especially for those who've had early onset constipation to rule out like a positional problem or a structural problem, things like that. So I think it's uh, if the onset concerns you, if there are other parts of the story like bleeding, poor growth, poor weight gain, those are the patients that should get evaluation. I would say that people do differ a little bit in like their threshold for getting, for example, celiac disease screening for an older child who's having a constipation. But to me, I think it really makes the most sense for children who also have issues with weight or other kinds of supporting symptoms, or they're just really not responding to your usual treatment. And one thing I know that Chris really likes to do if a, if a pediatric patient's coming into the emergency department with abdominal pain and a history of have, not having pooped is uh, he likes to order an abdominal x-ray just to Radiation confirm therapy, that. Radiation you know, therapy, that's usually, <laughs> usually works I hear. To confirm yeah. constipation. Uh, what are your <laughs> thoughts on, on Chris's practices? Oh, man. So, yes, abdominal x-rays are uh, a big source of uh, consternation, stress for pediatric gastroenterologists everywhere. I think that in reality, of course, abdominal x-rays have their role. But um, I think there's a little bit of over-reliance on abdominal x-rays, especially when it comes to constipation. Um, So certainly abdominal x-rays should not be used to diagnose constipation, right? Like constipation, the diagnosis is based on the story in the history. Everyone has some stool in their colon. Before you poop, there may be stool all throughout your colon. That's a totally normal thing. For all of us who do colonoscopies, I mean, it's shocking, even with people who do a prep, how much stool is in the colon. So certainly having stool in the colon does not mean you have constipation. 
It just means that, as one of my colleagues likes to say, you're a member of the human race. So not an abnormal finding. Um, so it should not be used for diagnosis. Um, certainly, like, there have been a lot of studies showing that so much variability in how people interpret stool volume in an x-ray. But that being said, we use abdominal x-rays too sometimes, right? So it's really more, it's not to make the diagnosis, but sometimes if you're able to demonstrate, for example, a huge, a tremendous amount of stool retention, that might affect how you like shape or how you do their cleanup, for example. If you do an x-ray and they have a huge like rectal impaction, you might want to do rectal enemas or suppositories instead of just an oral uh, regimen. If, the, if you're seeing a patient with fecal incontinence, you suspect constipation, but the story doesn't totally fit. If you get an x-ray, there's no stool, they're having like active fecal incontinence, then it does not sound like it's retentive fecal incontinence because of constipation. So there are certainly are times when abdominal x-rays can be helpful, but I think everyone has seen or heard of a case where a kid came in with pain, an x-ray showed stool, got discharged uh, with a clean out, and then they came back, you know, the next day with something like appendicitis or something, you know? So there's a lot of, uh, I guess it's just people have to be careful about getting an x-ray, not relying on too much and uh, not necessarily stopping the workup. It's just because we still see stool on the x-ray. So what does more workup look like? Is it, I know you said a little bit something about celiac workup, but maybe for mm -hmm. our older kids with maybe some weight or other type of changes in terms of growth. Um, are there other labs we look at, other imaging and is and what what's more in the wheelhouse of like the primary pediatrician and then we can talk a little bit about like further on after that yeah sure so um i think one point i want to drive home is that if the kid comes with constipation that is like the typical story no red flags they don't need any testing right and so testing really should be reserved for those who don't respond or have other parts of the story that are a little bit concerning um, I think like for the older child, you know, lab evaluation wise, I'd say that our, the ones that we most commonly will order are going to be select disease screening and a thyroid panel. So select disease screening, so like an anti-tissue transitaminase IgA and an IgA level. Um, so select disease, especially in younger kids, obviously for older kids, we typically think more about diarrhea, bloating, pain, that kind of stuff. But for younger kids, sometimes constipation can be the only presenting factor. Um, so yeah, so those are the two things that we typically will screen for, but I really feel like if it sounds just like constipation, I would at least try treating it first. If it goes away, you may not need to do any more testing. I love it. And I think this actually is a great segue into some further history, uh, that we get. Brian, do you want to tell us a little bit more about Bree? So on further history, Bree's parent says she's had some trouble potty training. and She had some trouble potty training when she was younger. She spends most of her days inside doing arts and crafts, drinks a glass of milk every day at dinner, and her older siblings also have struggled with constipation in the past. So listening to the story and thinking more broadly, what are some risk factors for developing constipation? Yeah, so going through little Bristol's history, just a few things. So first of all, definitely there can be certain times in life or like life stages where we typically will hear constipation began. And so you mentioned toilet training. So that's a very common age for constipation to at least start getting worse. Um, you know, even before that, I think another example would be when uh, babies are introduced solids. Um, so that's another common time when stool form will change and then maybe there's some discomfort and then there's some withholding and then and then we have like a toddler who's, you know, withholding every time they have to poop. Um, I think going to school, moving, big life changes like that, 
we'll oftentimes hear, uh, you know, constipation beginning then. Obviously, we can't avoid those times, but anyways, just an observation. You know, the next part, so Bree likes arts and crafts, so maybe doesn't love, like, running around outside that much. You know, in reality, there's not a lot of data about exercise, physical activity, and constipation in children. I think anecdotally, we, yeah, we do think that, you know, if you're more active, that that should help with constipation, but we don't prescribe like intense workout regimens for uh, our patients with constipation. I think it's really more just encouraging busy, being physically active, like for any child, you know, you mentioned milk intakes. That's another kind of controversial topic that, you know, I think especially, you know, even in pediatric GI, there's some confusion about, you know, really there's not good data that cutting down or eliminating milk helps with functional constipation. There have been a couple studies that showed some improvement in constipation with eliminating milk, but really those were small groups, younger children, potentially who also had some like allergic symptoms or milk allergy. So we don't ask them is to restrict milk intake uh, just for constipation alone, you know, and then, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna, uh, following up on the, the dietary question. Um, are mm-hmm. there other things that seem to exacerbate constipation and not to do the, the double barreled shotgun question, which I, I am prone to do, unfortunately, but if someone is exclusively breastfed or exclusively formula fed, how does that factor into your decision? Is it possible that they're constipated when they really only have one dietary source? Yeah. So I guess, uh, first about diet in general, there have been a lot of studies looking at uh, increasing fiber intake, maybe beyond like our usual recommended fiber intake. And for kids, there has not been good data that that improves constipation. So our constipation guidelines, which um, I can provide like the reference for later, they do talk about fiber, but really it's just about ma- making sure that a child is getting adequate fiber, which in reality, you know, may still be a uh, change for most of the kids we see. But anyway, so yeah, so adequate fiber and same with hydration, you know, so a lot of families are like, oh yeah, I just, I told her to drink water all day. But as you guys know, that just makes them pee a lot, not necessarily soften their stool. So um, we also just encourage like adequate hydration. You know, definitely there are some, especially fruits that can help soften stool. Um, so, I've, you know, uh, you know, prunes, apple pears, commonly recommended. There's some studies actually that kiwis can help soften stool. It's hard to have like an exclusively, you know, high kiwi diet, but those are things that we, you know, that I'll mention, especially for families that want to try more dietary approaches than uh, rely on medications. As for like formula fed versus breastfed, you know, at that, especially when they're exclusively formula fed or breastfed, so like early infancy, really constipation at all would raise some of that concern for other problems, right? So that would not be a common age to be seeing bad constipation. That being said, you know, just one kind of random thought. So we can see constipation in that age group sometimes develop because of uh, milk protein intolerance or uh, food protein induced uh, proctocolitis or commonly called milk cow's milk protein allergy. Um, So that can cause some proctocolitis and then pain with defecation actually to constipation, even though typically we think about, you know, maybe mucousy stools or specks of blood in the stool. So something to think about there. Definitely formula-fed versus breast-fed uh, infants can have different stool patterns. But anytime it's hard stool, painful, that kind of stuff, it's still going to be, we got to make sure we're not dealing with anything else that would predispose them to constipation that early on. One question I have about sort of supplementation. You said something about fiber. Like how, how do you mm-hmm. dose fiber? What, what's a recommended amount of fiber? 
I think um, part of our pre-reading that, you know, we, we, we got this, uh, we were, uh, read the, this NAFGAN guideline from, I think, 2014, 2015. And actually, mm-hmm. it didn't even... I think in the, those guidelines, they say, well, there's not enough evidence to really show that fiber does much. But as you think about like, it's not like fiber can probably hurt you that much either. So it might be a reasonable treatment. I was just wondering, like, how do you make that discussion? Do you just give them a handout of high fiber foods or do you say, hey, we can buy some Metamucil off the shelf, take a capful every day, two capsules every day? Like, how does how does that work? What does that sound like? Yeah. So in reality, you know, I, I don't often recommend fiber supplements. You know, I feel like if they've reached me, I would like to try medication that we know is effective. You know, that's going to be like more effective than just trying fiber. Um, if families feel really strong about it, then yes, sometimes I will recommend over the counter supplements. But um, in reality, I don't give them strict guidelines. I feel like, you know, the evidence pretty clearly shows that for treating constipation, medication, stool softeners, stimulant laxatives will be, will be much more effective. So I try to focus more on that. Can we now talk about those then? Like which yeah. which stimulant laxatives are you go-to? Which are the ones that people probably should stay away from? What are the pros and cons of each of... Because there seem to be lots of options, you know, everything from PEG to lactulose to like, what do you reach for from, from your toolbox first? Yeah, so uh, it does depend a little bit on age. So I'd say that infants are a little bit of a different category. And then there's like older kids. Um, So for infants, for example, you know, in reality for young infants, like we kind of talked about, like if they're developing constipation, we want to make sure we're not missing anything. I oftentimes will like verify formula mixing is correct. We might think about trying to eliminate milk, protein, soy, that kind of thing. Older infants, I typically start with a stool softener like lactulose, sometimes milk and magnesia. Older infants, I might start using PEG 3350 or Miralax. For older kids... Um, I do start with a stool softener first if it hasn't been tried already, like PEG 3350. That's going to be, you know, it's not necessarily more effective than other stool softeners, but in head-to-head studies against things like milk magnesia or mineral oil, it's definitely better tolerated and kids are more compliant with it. So that is still kind of like in the guidelines too, the go-to medication. But there are many choices for stool softeners and then a couple of choices for stimulant laxatives. You know, so in terms of softening, so PEG 3350, lactulose, milk magnesia has some softening effect, uh, mineral oil, not super well tolerated by mouth, but um, sometimes kids do drink it. And then if a softener by itself is not enough, then I will add or substitute for a stimulant laxative. In kids, really, the two that we use are going to be Senna and Visicodal. And, uh, you know, Visicodal comes as a tablet and it shouldn't be crushed. So really for younger kids, it's just Senna. Um, so Senna, I feel like is uh, pretty well tolerated. And I think it's one of those things that may be a little bit underused. For me, I feel very comfortable with using Senna or Bizacodal. I think there's a lot of concern out there about oh, making the colon lazy or dependent on the stimulant, but really there's no evidence for that, especially for kids. Like we use that a lot. And if anything, what makes the colon more quote unquote lazy or hypomodal is going to be if we don't adequately treat the constipation, there's retention, you know, colon gets dilated. That's really, it's really going to cause the problem rather than a stimulant laxative. So to me, like, yeah, I have no problem using stimulant laxatives for kids as well. Um, I think the goal is going to be, especially when they're withholding, how can we generate contraction strong enough to push past that to still empty the colon? And sometimes a stool softener by itself is not enough to do that. 
Uh, so that's where I begin, at least for oral medications. And I'd love to follow up on that as far as if you have a patient that you've diagnosed constipation who's coming into your office, do you automatically kind of start them on maintenance therapy where you're giving them daily medicine? Or do you ever just, is there acute, do you, is in your mind, is it acute treatment? And then we'll see how it goes. What's your kind of approach to, is there a difference between acute treatment of constipation and chronic treatment of constipation? Right. So the treatment does depend a lot on the history. I think a big one of the big first decision points is going to be whether or not they have some degree of stool retention that requires some degree of a clean out. You know, for example, if they're having fecal incontinence, then that implies some degree of a fecal impaction. And so they would definitely require some degree of a clean out. So um, I think that's one of the first steps. So the acute treatment may be a little bit of a clean out, higher doses for a couple of days until there's like a good amount of stool output. But I do feel like, especially for the patients that we see who've usually been struggling with this for several months or even years. Uh, I do think that maintenance treatment is a big part of really eventually moving on and no longer needing medications, which is obviously still ultimately the goal. So I try to impress upon families that, you know, I don't want this, you know, your child on medications either. I think the way to get there with having their, their constipation under control is regular use of medications now and finding what's going to help them empty their colon so they know it's easy to pass, they can relax, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, so like acute treatment, maybe a clean out, but I do feel like uh, maintenance treatment is important. It doesn't have to be super aggressive, but just enough to make sure that the child is consistently fully emptying their colon on a regular basis uh, until their body can kind of get used to that and then maintain it without a medication. And for a clean out, what is your typical... Uh, what, what's a genius like you doing for uh, a clean out? Is it <laughs> when do you determine inpatient versus outpatient? Are you throwing an NG tube in the office? Or is there a certain number of capfuls or is it just drink until it, it fits it? What, what, what's your clean out regimen? Yes. So I uh, rely on the actual geniuses that came before me. So we, we do have kind of like set regimens that we use. And uh, like I said before, it kind of depends on the presentation for sure. You know, in reality, we'll oftentimes recommend. Uh, the cleanouts that we recommend for our patients before a colonoscopy. For us here, it's really higher doses of PEG 3350 and also a stimulant. So based on age, whether it's Senna or Bizocodal. You know, just to give like an example. Uh, so for uh, our older kids, teenagers, we'll actually ask them to take up to 14 capfuls of Miralax, mixed with 64 ounces over the course of half a day with Bizocodal before and after. So that's kind of like our usual for teenagers, older kids, uh, over 40 kilos, that kind of thing. And then it's kind of adjusted for younger, uh, younger children. So that's our typical like outpatient cleanout. I had alluded to before, you know, if we know that there's a lot of stool in the rectum, then we may want to uh, introduce rectal enemas or suppositories as part of that cleanout. Um, so for sure, um, if you know all the stools at the bottom, giving tons of medications from above is going to be way less effective than giving a mineral oil enema or a stimulant like a bisocodal enema uh, directly to where the where it needs to go as for when we admit kids to the hospital so i definitely am not putting an ngs in clinic it, you know it really it's going to be oral medications potentially rectal medications if the child can tolerate it for more severe patients and what i mean by that is like if they've tried these outpatient cleanouts but they're still not able to empty their colon especially if they're still having a lot of leakage fecal incontinence bloating pain decreased appetite, those kinds of things where they're vomiting up the cleanout, they can't tolerate it. That's when I would think about bringing them to the hospital for a cleanout. 
And as you alluded to, typically that looks like, well, you know, really the first part is going to be rectal enemas, usually on a scheduled basis, trying to make at least something move. Like if something's, if there's a huge impaction, in many ways, it's a functional obstruction, right? So we don't want to just start pumping stuff in from above. Uh, We've run into some problems with that here, like in the past, especially for our uh, developmentally delayed children or autistic children where they can't really express some of that discomfort that can arise from stuff really, you know, backing up and nothing moving forward. So anyway, so we try to get stuff moving from from below first. Usually that's enemas, mineral oil, saline, sometimes a stimulant. And then if that doesn't work, then we may have to do a manual disimpaction in the OR. And then after that, we place an NG and then run, typically go lightly, new lightly until stools are clear. We usually verify sometimes afterwards with an x-ray. But yeah, that's our typical kind of inpatient plan. So this is interesting. So we, and I was saying, I was looking at the, the NAF scan guide, the NAF, uh-huh. I can't, I can, NAF scan NAF guidelines, began. From, <laughs> NAF began guidelines um, from 2014. And they have these super intense uh, algorithm. I mean, this yes. is, I mean, it looks like crazy man on the wall <laughs> type workflows on, uh-huh. and it's like a, you know, do they have constipation? Do they qualify? All right, then try treatment. They fail then. And it's like, it's a treatment eval, treatment eval, like sort of big, like thing. At what point as a primary pediatrician, do I need to start freaking out and be like, maybe I need to get you to pediatric GI. Like <laughs> what you're explaining to me, like probably when I know for a fact, when I'm getting to like inpatient admission for some of these things, I'm probably going to have GI involved. What earlier area should I be doing this when I'm like thinking about doing these enemas should or should pediatricians be comfortable like prescribing these things while we're doing other workup yeah so so I think that you know the vast majority of kids with functional constipation will improve with really like fairly basic treatment so educating the family on what exactly we're dealing with you know for example like making sure they don't punish the child for having an accident that kind of thing some behavioral strategies, like maybe if it doesn't work for everybody, sometimes like, you know, sitting on the toilet certain times of the day, that kind of thing. And then also I do feel like every primary care doctor provider should be comfortable with using stool softeners, you know, super safe. I oftentimes have families adjust the dose even at home. And then ideally also one stimulant, you know, I feel like that really is going to take care of most of the kids that we're seeing. And, uh, you know, but if we're still struggling despite that, then I think that's when it, it might be worth uh, involving a pediatric GI. And one thing would be to make sure that we're not missing anything else, but also maybe they would have some more comfort with using higher doses or some of our newer other medications we might use, or maybe they need some more uh, testing looking more at the constipation itself. I Are there other... I was going to say, are there other, what, what other newer medications yeah. were, were, did you yeah. mean? Yeah, that was like, my question. So, what, what do you guys get? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, there are a number of medications that are kind of more used in the adult world that we are starting to use more and more in pediatrics as well, especially for our older kids, teenagers. Um, I would say that, like, this is probably not something the primary care doctor needs to, like, really know about, but, you know, just a couple examples. So, uh, for patients who have constipation, or irritable bowel syndrome with constipation will oftentimes use this class of medications called secretagogues. It includes things like linaclotide, libiprostone. Those two we've been using more and more in children. Procalipride is a pro-motility medication that we've been using really for upper GI and lower GI motility issues. But I'm a little bit biased as a motility specialist. I think most pediatric GIs are not using that a ton. <laughs> but the thing is, unlike in adults, 
Actually, all three of those have had randomized controlled trials done in children and all were negative. All of those were actually preceded by cohort studies that were positive, including ones that we've published. So there's that caveat. In reality, I mean, I personally feel like it's because the spectrum of what causes constipation in children is varied and can be very different for like a young child and a teenager. Uh, but that, so I definitely feel like there are patients who really respond well to those kinds of medications. And in the adult world, you know, those are used very widely. So um, yes, there are some newer medications that we're starting to use, but still softeners, stimulant laxatives should treat the, the majority of our kids with constipation effectively. So from the, the new with mixed evidence to the old with mixed evidence, do you ever go to DocuSate? Is that ever something that you reach for? No. That was very definitive. Really. Yeah. <laughs> we'll cross that off. Great. So we don't use it in adults and we don't do it in peace. So. Uh, it, it has seen its day. Um, yeah. I mean, yes, yeah, some pediatric GIs still prescribe it. But to me, like, you know, the literature is pretty supportive of uh, PEG3350 as most effective and also most easy to comply with. So that really is kind of the, the mainstay for our treatment. So sometimes treating constipation seems like it'll take a while, especially if we go through that entire workflow that I, I was looking at. Yeah. And so like I could see parents like freaking out, like my kid only poops once a week. Like how worried should we be? Like, should we say, all right, at this point, it's been two weeks. We've only had two poops. We really need to bring you inpatient because of all the other red flags that we've talked about. Or it's like, well, we're still going every once in a while kid's not in that much pain we're good but or no they they just really have to go it, like is there what we're on the spectrum should we be looking and what type of complications can occur if we don't get these kids treated yeah well so first to address this figure you keep on referencing uh i think we in the gi motility field also agree that it's not the most helpful figure um it also kind of just leads to a point where once, it's once constipation is refractory to our usual treatment, it just lists like all the possible options without any guidance. So, yes. Yeah, so we also, and many of our talks, including my own, will make fun of that figure. Um, but yes, okay, so your question, like how do we decide how serious, how urgent this is? And um, right, so constipation, even though it's common, right? So, you know, in population-based studies, about 12% of children will at any given time meet criteria for functional constipation. Even though it's common, um, it can at times be very serious. And, uh, you know, I'd say like, yes, the majority of children with constipation, you know, it's it, the vast majority can be treated effectively as an outpatient and they never need inpatient treatment. Um, usually when, okay, if we don't go for a few days, they'll respond to a change in dose of their, of their stool softener or maybe even a, an enema if they need it, that kind of thing. So, no, I would not panic if they go several days without a bowel mint. I think there are, there's a lot of range that we can use those medications we talked about for. Um, but definitely, I, in my opinion, like if it's leading to fecal incontinence, if it's leading to like significant impacts on quality of life, pain, if it's like hard to tolerate the medications, that kind of thing, then yeah, I do think that's like where we have to think about like how can we get this under control? And sometimes that means trying some of those newer medications, doing some more specialized testing that we'll do to kind of look at what maybe the underlying mechanism is for that child with constipation, things like that. But yeah, the vast majority though, um, will respond to the things that we talked about. Um, can kids die from constipation that's un untreated? Yeah. So 
you know, in reality, kids have died from constipation. It's not, obviously, it's, extre- it's extremely rare, fortunately, but we can see constipation over time get to the point where there is such severe stool retention in the colon. The colon is a very compliant organ. It'll keep on stretching to accommodate stool. Sometimes that stool can really build to the point where there is actually an obstruction, right? Just like any bowel obstruction. Um, sometimes that pressure on the bowel wall can lead to stercoral colitis and damage of the lining. And then ultimately, perforations have occurred, even in, even in our hospital. So yes, it is, I think, something that people sometimes underestimate how severe it can be, especially for uh, certain populations of children, like I mentioned before, like our development delayed children who may not respond to those cues as obviously. Um, we, it may be harder to tell when they're in a lot of pain. In those kinds of patients, we want to really be careful that we don't run into those kinds of problems. And so maybe to, to recap in my mind, if we have a kid who is presenting with persistent constipation, we've said, you know, there's no clear findings of a spinal malformation or anal mm-hmm. dysplasia. We're kind of not drawing any of those red flags. We can treat with PED, the polyethylene glycol, mm-hmm. um, Senna, and Enema, and kind of continue to increase dose until we presume we will see some uh, improvement. Are there specific dosings? I know you mentioned different on age, depends on uh, severity. Is there a resource that you use or that I could use in a primary care setting that would kind of help guide whether I'm starting at one cap and how quickly to go up or to come up with a regimen? Yes. So, you know, we had alluded to before these guidelines. So NASPGAN is like a I know it's like really hard to pronounce, but it stands for North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition. That's our Pediatric GI Society. And those guidelines do actually have a table with dose ranges. And so I feel like I always tell all the residents to like check it out. Even if you just Google like pediatric constipation guidelines, that should be one of the top hits. Um, so yes, there's a table there for some dosing guidelines for not just polyethylene glycol, but some of the other options we have as well. Beautiful. And then if we are treating with those higher doses and having some intractable constipation, it sounds like that's when we can really use some of our GI colleagues to kind of help explore and see if there are other causes. And you're you're right that in the graphic, it is somewhat comical of some of the uh, (laughs) other lists that are just treating accordingly. One pearl that someone taught me that I, I think is true, but would love to ask you to confirm is um, delayed presentation of Hirschsprung's disease. I feel like we always think you have either have delayed meconium or not. Um, but can you have uh, a, a child or pre- even adolescent presenting with Hirschsprung's disease? And, and what's that typically like? Yes. So, so you definitely can. Um, it's not very common, but yes, it is possible. You know, so as you guys know, Hirschsprung disease, so ganglion cells are not making it all the way down to the bottom. You know, it can really be variable in presentation as well. Like the amount of colon affected can be the entire colon or it can be a very short segment. So sometimes those kids with a shorter segment may make it to an older age without getting to that point where they get evaluated for it. So, yes, we can see Hirschman disease in older kids. I'd say even just like a year or two ago, we had a uh, 18, 19 year old uh, young adult who was diagnosed with Hirschsprung disease. Mm. And uh, so it is something that should still be on the radar, especially if, you know, longstanding constipation. So certainly if for an older child, the presentation usually is pretty dramatic in terms of like duration and then the amount of stool retention. 
Um, but yes, it is something to like at least think about, especially and maybe even act on if they're not responding to your uh, usual, your like conventional treatment. And as, as a pediatric GI doc, what does, because I assume I'm not going to be ordering some of this stuff, but what does the workout, if you're worried about Hirschsprungs or some yeah. of these other things look like? Like, I know there's things like, like rectal manometry or colonic manometry and rectal biopsies. I, I remember when I was a resident, like doing like a rectal biopsy just in clinic, like this little suction thing that's yep. the snap and stuff like that. Can you explain some of that and things that we might be seeing come back from our GI um, colleagues when we send our patients out? Yeah, sure. So, right. So um, for Hirschsprung disease specifically, there's really kind of two main initial tests that we'll use. Actually, I would say actually three. Um, I guess I'll start with kind of the most basic one would be a contrast enema, looking for a more narrow segment, kind of really distally, and then opening up into a bigger sigmoid, uh, like a reverse rectosigmoid ratio. So the uh, non-innervated part of the colon is going to be a little bit more contracted. So that's one screening test, but really kind of the more definitive ones would be rectal biopsy. So as you mentioned, that can be a rectal suction biopsy done with like a, we have like a little rectal suction biopsy gun that we have. Uh, or sometimes for our older patients, we'll have our colorectal surgeons do like a full thickness rectal biopsy in the OR. Um, the other option would be an anorectal manometry study. So that's kind of like my specialty is like manometry testing, motility testing, um, for a kid that would look like, you know, placing a thin, flexible catheter, it's like maybe the size of like an iPhone power cord. There's pressure sensors all along it, and then the nurse will insert it just a few centimeters into the rectum. So that measures anal sphincter pressure. The child can try to push it out. We can look at how coordinated the muscles are. And then for Hirschman disease in particular, there's a balloon at the end of the catheter that we gradually inflate to simulate a piece of poop. And then if the nerves are there and can tell and can sense it, there's a recto-anal inhibitory reflex where the nerves will tell the internal part of the anal sphincter to relax. So that reflex would then rule out Hirschsprung disease. So yes, there are several ways to look for that. And you also alluded to colonic manometry. So that's kind of a more intense test where we do a colonoscopy and drag in and place this like long manometry catheter. And then we leave, in, we leave it in for about a day or so, like maybe six hours, and see what the colon does over the course of the day. So that can help identify dismodal segments of colon. Like if you get an x-ray, there's a huge dilated sigmoid colon. You know, are those contractions really there in that segment or not? You know, manometry can tell us that. Really, though, in my opinion, clock manometry is more reserved for when you're thinking about surgery. Like you've gotten to that point. Anorectal manometry, though, can be helpful much earlier on. You know, especially for teenagers, for example. If we're not, even if we're not really worried about Hirschsprungs, it can, it can identify pelvic floor dysfunction, where we try to push our anal sphincter, our pelvic floor is only tightening up instead of relaxing. Those kinds of things might be responsive to pelvic floor biofeedback therapy or physiotherapy that can kind of help guide treatment. And it's a minimally invasive, no anesthesia test. Um, it's usually pretty well tolerated by kids over four or so years of age. So yeah, there's some tools that we can use to help kind of guide us where to go once we've kind of tried our usual treatment. That's pretty great. And uh, yeah, the colonic manometry is, it's not something I've typically done in uh, primary care practice. And so it's good <laughs> to have that exposure and know, know it's out there. Um, I know that there's uh, a wide variety of, of patients that present with uh, significant constipation. One of the missions of our show is to really try to focus on health equity and how it affects different populations, whether it's based on race or socioeconomic status or gender. And I'm curious if there's data in that in 
constipation and specifically also looking at, you know, different levels of abilities and, and neurodivergent individuals, also a major part of diversity, equity, inclusion. Can you talk a little bit about maybe how neurodivergence can sometimes present with constipation or if there's other concepts of health equity in this field? Yeah. So I, I'll start by just saying, so yes, I do think a lot more work has to be done in that area in the world of functional constipation. This common problem that we know can lead to a lot of comorbidities and cost and that kind of thing. Uh, you mentioned like neurodivergent uh, individuals. So definitely constipation can be more common and treatment may have to be tailored for that population. Um, so we know, for example, for autism spectrum disorder, that's a very clear risk factor for having more difficult to control constipation. And, you know, even just basic things like uh, PEG 3350, we, we talked about it so much. And uh, yes, it's supposed to dissolve. You're not supposed to taste it. But I feel like a lot of my autistic patients are like super tasters. They can definitely tell it's there. You may have to adjust. You, you may rely more on Senna, for example. Um, Senna comes as chocolate squares. It can be a liquid. You know, there's more flexibility there, that kind of thing. So there definitely are uh, adjustments that have to be made. And I do think for autism in particular, there is a growing body of literature about how really a variety of GI diseases and disorders are different for that population and, and require maybe a, a little bit of a nuanced approach to their management. As for uh, gender, uh, so sex and gender can play a role in constipation. Like there's some data showing that maybe constipation is a bit more common in boys for in the younger age group, which is a little bit different than uh, in the older age group, but you know, not like huge differences there. Um, but certainly for race, ethnicity, you know, there's, there actually have been a lot of epidemiological studies in different countries around all across the world. But, you know, I think there's probably a lot more in terms of disparities, access to care, that kind of stuff. You know, just like for every other disease process that's been looked at, I'm sure constipation is no different. But really, that aspect has not been looked at. So I think it definitely deserves more, more investigation. Excellent. Thank you. Brian, maybe let's, uh, let's, we'll do a speed round for the final case and then and then wrap up. I love it. So for your final case, we're back in the clinic. Your last visit of the day is a young man named Holden Brown. Yes. <laughs> he is a 15-year-old with autism spectrum disorder and longstanding constipation. He takes daily polyethylene glycol 3350. So I, I want to know, we've covered it a little bit. What does a typical maintenance regimen look like? Sure. So yes, it does depend on age and severity, but for a teenager, I honestly would typically start with our usual standard dose, one capful once a day. And uh, we actually, actually one of our GI fellows, uh, Kate Hawa, recently created like an action plan for constipation that we studied and we're trying to get published. You know, so because really these medications are safe enough where we feel comfortable having families adjust the dose on their own. So I usually will start with one capful a day and then give a range to adjust and like I mentioned, I have a low threshold for adding in a stimulant. So in the beginning, I might just have it as needed or not really there at all. But, you know, if we're struggling a little bit, I might add in just, for example, like a 15 milligram chocolate chewable square or, you know, it comes in like eight point in at least in the United States, like eight point six milligram tablets that we can do two of. I think that's kind of like a usual one time daily dose to start with. And then we can also adjust that dose, too. 
What's the uh, 3350 stand for? What is that all about? How, is that the... It's got to be better than the 3349, <laughs> Yeah, the 3349 right? is terrible. <laughs> yeah, that was a bad formulation. Yeah. So I believe it's the molecular weight, but if I'm ah. wrong, please uh, cut this out. Oh, I like it. All right, yeah, we'll fact check <laughs> um, that. Uh, yes. <laughs> maybe in addition to medication, are there other psychological therapies for kids that are having behavioral issues or withholding? Or it sounds like you mentioned maybe some pelvic floor. What are some of the other non-pharmacological therapies that can sometimes be helpful? Yeah, so I do think that for some patients, behavioral therapies can be a big part of what ultimately helps them improve. And so in reality, we have a bowel management clinic here that involves a GI psychologist plus a GI provider. And so you know that may be as simple as like just tracking stools, implementing some kind of reward system. But yeah, it can also, especially once kids are struggling enough to have stool accidents and withdrawing from school. I mean, there's a lot of other factors that play into their overall presentation. So um, yes, behavioral, the involvement of a GS psychologist or a behavioral specialist can be a, play a big role in that. I had mentioned, you know, pelvic floor therapy before, and that's really more for like a more specialized uh, cohort. So those who we've identified pelvic floor dysfunction as kind of their underlying cause. Uh, so they have an issue with their outlet. They can't relax. And so if anything, that's even more common in adults. So, right. So there's some physiotherapy or biofeedback therapy exercises that can help guide and teach children to be able to push effectively and relax their pelvic floor at the same time. There's some uh, video games that have been created for that. So usually kids kind of get it and they can squeeze and this character goes up or down and relax, that kind of thing. So that helps them to control their pelvic floor. So yeah, there are a lot of different things that have been looked at that are not medications. But yeah, behavioral treatment is a big part of that. And then in certain patients, pelvic floor physiotherapy may be an option. Well, Peter, thank you so much for talking to us today. I learned so much and I'm sure our listeners did too. Do you mind helping us wrap up a couple main take-home points that you want our listeners to come away from this episode? Yeah, sure. So, you know, once again, thank you so much for inviting me. I feel very passionate that like, even though constipation is common and usually easily managed, I do feel like we need to recognize that it can be devastating to children, especially when fecal incontinence is involved. I feel like it's one of those things where, you know, the hospital is never going to advertise the kid who's like sewing their pants. No one wants to talk about this. Parents don't want to talk about it. And it's just like, it's, it's kind of sad to see, you know, how much it can really change a child's demeanor and then how much happier they are, you know, once you finally take care of it. So I feel like it's important to recognize and kind of take constipation seriously as something that can really impact a child. I think the other, you know, the second thing that I would want to remind people about is uh, to not be afraid of stimulant laxatives. I think that even even a little bit in the pediatric GI world, there's some, uh, you know, wariness of using stimulants for too long, that kind of thing. But really, that can be the child response to even better than our usual stool softeners. You know, for the child with fecal incontinence, sometimes softening the stools more just makes the accidents worse. You know, they may need a stimulant to help push that stool out. So I would say to not be afraid of stimulant laxatives. And uh, if we're still struggling, if the child's not responding, you know, give your friendly uh, neighborhood pediatric GI doctor a call. Love it. Embracing the Senna. Uh, yes. <laughs> is there um, anything that you would like to plug? I know you're a part of a lot of cool teaching projects. What are some things that we can send our listeners to to check out? Yeah, sure. So um, as alluded to before, so I do uh, host a podcast called Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI Amazing podcast. Name. Amazing name. Thank you. Thank you. 
Um, we almost went with Tummy Time, which uh, Ooh, also th- good. thankfully was taken because, uh, no, it's way worse. But uh, So Bowel Sounds, um, it's like our NAS Begins, our Pediatric GS Society uh, podcast. Um, so if you, inter- if you are interested in hearing more about a variety of d- different GI topics and GI distant topics, check it out. And one other thing I'll just plug too, so our society has a toolbox it's like a mobile-friendly uh, w- website that used to be an app. It's uh, toolbox.naspghan.org. Basically, it's like a little reference that has a lot of resources for really a lot of these guidelines I mentioned are there for GI fellows or even you know ED, whoever. If there's a foreign body, there's algorithms. If there's a GI bleed, there's algorithms to use. Uh, Pat Reeves is a young GI doc who helped put that lot, a lot of that together. And so um, I would check out that toolbox. I think that can help a lot, especially if you're on your GI rotation or if there's a GI issue that comes up. Wow, this website's amazing. I'm, I'm glancing through it right now. I'm going to have to go through it. <laughs> this is a cool resource. Um, Honestly, I check it when I'm on call too. Like if I get called from an ED, oh, there's like a nail this size, this age. I That's what I'm pulling up while I'm talking to them. So Nice. This is wonderful. This has been a great, I think, overview of diagnosis, treatment, and some very cool pearls and great resources for everyone. So uh, we're very appreciative. Thank you for, for sharing your time, your expertise. We really appreciate having you on. Thank you for thank you for joining us, Peter. No, once again, thank you for the invite. And uh, I appreciate so much what you guys do for our medical community. So keep up the good work. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our Knowledge Food Formula Feed newsletter at our website, thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice change and knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. You can also email us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Brian Ward, who is also the uh, runner of the Weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter. A big thank you also to our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazer, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been, oh dear, I've been Dr. Brian Ward. There it is. <laughs> and this has been Chris the Chew Manchu. I'll pod you guys later. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.